Kind of a rambunctious crowd, I like that. Um, I'm Joe, I'm one of the pastors here. I work with the Greenhouse and uh, that's our college and young professional group. So glad you joined us this morning. Hey, if you're new with us, sometimes you come to church and you think, man, everybody here seems like they have it together. I'm just gonna tell you right now, all the people around you don't, including me. We just sang that song. Uh, we got a chance to be reminded of the, the truth that we uh, were wretched at one point. And, and in many ways, I still feel that way in my life. And so let's give thanks and we'll dive in here um, with what God has for us this morning. Father, we give thanks to you this morning. We do thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have been so good to us. God, today we're just going to just revel in it. And we're, we're so excited that you want to teach us your ways, that you want to guide us in your truth and lead us. And God, we thank you that you don't just uh, rescue us and leave us, but you, you walk with us. You teach us to walk with you. And so today, would you have your way in our lives? Would you, would you be high and lifted up? Would you be elevated? Would we just figure out how can we yield more of us to you? And we lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. What if the world we live in doesn't improve? You ever thought about that? It seems like every time I, I begin to prep to preach, we have another challenging circumstance that we're processing through, whether it's the economy and our 401k that seems like it's kind of going up and down, or disappointment with politics, personal tragedy, mass shootings, catastrophic natural disasters, war, civil unrest, or just blatant evil that's played out through murderous attacks. How much of our choice to rejoice is connected to our circumstances? How much of my joy is anchored to this internal dream that I've manufactured or has been taught to me from simply living in this culture, this dream that one day all of my goals and, and desires and aspirations will align and be realized? It's not wrong to have goals and dreams, but the problem comes when our joy is tied to those dreams. My desire today isn't to be a dream crusher in any way, but it seems more and more we are moving toward a dystopian reality than a utopian one. What if life never becomes what you hoped it would? Can you experience joy regardless of your circumstances, regardless of your reality? When we look at the Bible, we would hear a resounding yes. As we bounce from the E2E series to Philippians, we hear over and over again that we can have joy regardless of, our, of life's circumstances. We can rejoice because of Jesus and his gospel. Thomas Rhett says it like this, if I never get to see the northern lights or if I never get to see the Eiffel Tower at night, oh, if all I got is your hand in my hand, baby, I could die a happy man. And because of Jesus, we can die a joy-filled person, even if we never get to see our earthly dreams come to fruition. Paul, who wrote this letter that we're in, wrote it from the pit of dystopia, chained to a Roman guard, imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And yet again, he rejoiced, and he challenges readers who follow Jesus to rejoice. He challenges, to, he challenges us today to wrestle with where does, our, uh, where does our joy come from? Is it from Jesus and his great grace, or is it from some other source that will always, always, always overpromise and underdeliver? As we continue in Philippians 4, Paul is going to give us some incredible things to consider today. 
He's gonna show us how the gospel overflows in our lives. And because of the gospel, he's gonna give us two positive commands and one negative command with, a, with really is a positive thrust to it. So if you have a Bible or a web-enabled device, you can flip or tap your way to Philippians chapter four, starting in verse four. This is what Paul wrote, and this is what we read. He said this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul starts out with this first gospel overflow imperative, and it's this, rejoice in the Lord always. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul has already made this idea of joy as a key theme of his letter to this church. He says it the same thing over and over and over again, right? Why? Because God wants us to hear it. God wants us to rejoice and be glad and take pleasure in him all the time. God wants us to choose to focus our lives on him and who he is and what he's done for us. Why? We have all the reasons to rejoice. Now think about it, if you're in Christ, if you've been spiritually reborn, you've been given so much to rejoice about. And I really wanna challenge you to think about it, I mean, really to think about it. Think about it a lot because of Jesus, you're no longer a slave to your flesh. You're no longer a slave to your sin nature. You're no longer under the control of the devil. You have been given eternal life. Your future is secured. The economy can't affect your right standing with God. Terrorism and hate can't affect the fact that you are fully accepted by God because of Jesus. No one can take that away from you. You have a hope that the world around you lacks. And because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, your hope is secure. It's anchored to the promise of Jesus that one day he'll return for us or we'll die and be with him forever. If your life dreams don't ever materialize, you have experienced the greatest good anyone will ever know in this life. You end up destitute and in prison because of the gospel, alone. You still have everything because you have Jesus. You realize that God's with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. You have all the reasons you need today to rejoice. The question we need to wrestle with is this. What are you fixing your eyes on? Are you staring at your circumstances or are you staring at the gospel? Are you mulling over the disappointment and discouragement from your past, maybe even from the past of just this morning? Or do you have your mind set on how God sees you and where he's taking you? Do I have a perspective that mirrors God's word? Or is my worldview simply a byproduct of living on a fallen planet? This is it, I think this is it right here. You wonder why there are Christians you know that have joy and happiness regardless of their life circumstances? It's because they've embraced a biblical perspective for their life. Just simply listening to someone preach won't do that in your life. You have to actively pursue a thought life that lines up with this book. 
And I, I'm personally challenged constantly by what, what Paul writes here. And I've been th- as I've been thinking about this, this teaching, I've been thinking about it since the last time I preached. Somehow you and I need to figure out how we can just sit in God's word for a time. It's good to hear it preached during our weekend gathering, but you need to find ways to get this into your mind more regularly. Like I'm not speaking to you kind of like in a, in a guilt kind of way. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to coach you. I want to encourage you to pursue some way of holding on to this perspective today. And this perspective is this, I have more reasons to rejoice in the Lord than to despair. I have more reasons to rejoice than to feel discouraged. Your task today is to go home and write down all the ways that God has been good to you. Listen to what Psalm 103, listen to what the writer says. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit. I'm not who I want to be, but I'm not who I used to be. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The psalmist is constantly meditating on the the goodness of God. He's putting these thoughts in his mind. God has redeemed my life from the pit. He's crowned me with steadfast love and mercy. He satisfies me with good. Our problem is that we're fixated on the wrong things. Our eyes are on our circumstances and they aren't on our Lord. We have a perspective problem and the greatest way to rock yourself out of this rut is by fixing your eyes on Jesus and his gospel. Now, if you're new to church, the gospel is super deep and it, but it's also incredibly simple. I mean, all those words we sang in, our, in, in the songs we, we worshiped to begin with, they really embody the, the gospel. The gospel is God came to earth, put on flesh. He lived among us. He, he walked among us. He showed us what it was like to be fully human. He came for the people of Israel, the Jews. See, the Jews, they wanted him to rescue them from their Roman oppression. But Jesus had a bigger plan in mind. He wanted to rescue them from their sin oppression. And in one of the most unbelievable scenarios ever told, Jesus, the the sinless, the innocent Lamb of God, chose to suffer and die one of the most harsh, brutal ways that someone could die. On a Roman cross pinned between two hardened criminals, so that he could pay the sin and the wrong that we deserve to pay for. He took our sin unto himself and gave us his perfection so that we could be reunited with God. We could walk with God. We could have fellowship with God. We could be in relationship with God. That anybody would respond to what he did, he would make them a child of God. And their response would be like, I don't wanna live my way anymore. I wanna turn to you, I wanna repent and believe in you, Jesus. That's the essence of the gospel. And it's, it's simple, but yet if you think about the implications of that, it is so profound. You will spend every, you could spend the rest of your life thinking about it and you would never get to the depths. 
And so that's what we talk about when we talk about gospel overflow. Is how does the gospel overflow in our lives? Paul says that we're to rejoice in the Lord always. That's our first gospel overflow imperative. The second gospel overflow is this. Verse five, be reasonable. Let your reasonableness, Paul says, be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, honestly, the command, this command specifically, this idea of being reasonable has been super challenging for me to think about over the last several weeks. What does Paul mean when he says your reasonableness? Well, the Greek word there is this word epiakes. And it means to be gentle, kind, tolerant, seemly, equitable, yielding, generous, reasonable, moderate. The ESV translates it reasonableness. The, the NIV translates it gentleness. And there's a reason why you see two different words there. One scholar notes this about the Greek for reasonableness. He says, no single word translates epiakes well. And commentators consistently insist that the word contains an element of selflessness. The gentle person does not insist on his rights. The same writer continues, he says this, it is that considerate courtesy and respect for the integrity of others which prompts a man not to be forever standing on his rights. And then listen to this. And it is preeminently the character of Jesus. Reasonableness is what's lacking in our world. I almost don't even know where to start with this one. My kids asked me the other day if I've ever gotten the middle finger before. I was like, I get the middle finger all the time. <laughs> Two times I have made a left turn at a specific intersection over the past month. Both times I was trailering my boat and I pulled out with what seemed like plenty of time. I don't even think the person had to slow down. But both times I got a super angry middle finger along with some words that appeared to be, love you. <laughs> it was confusing. I don't know if you can understand where I'm at, but angry face, middle finger, followed by what appeared to be, love you. Anyway, it seemed like he stepped on the gas only to slam on the brakes so that he could express this disapproval of my life. Same thing happened twice. Now that I think about it, it could have been the same guy. <laughs> Is that even possible? Gentle, yielding, moderate, reasonable. Put yourself in that situation. Someone pulls out and you have to slow down. What does it cost you to be gracious? Five seconds? Maybe, maybe not even five seconds. What if because of your reasonable, gentle attitude, you arrived where you were going 30 seconds later than if you hadn't been inconvenienced. Oh, that's the reason why we give and receive the middle finger, isn't it? It's because we've been inconvenienced. I love how that commentary writer put it. The word for reasonableness contains an element of selflessness. The sense that you've yielded your rights. As I've been thinking about, uh, you know, verse five for a while, I realized that I'm really not very reasonable. I don't give someone the, the finger. I'm more sophisticated than that. This is what I do. I don't take the time to carefully consider an appeal one of my kids thoughtfully makes. I don't take the time to weigh a, a thought that my wife shares with me. Maybe when she comes to me and says, you know, I have some concerns about 
the way that you reacted. And instead of saying, oh, thanks for sharing that with me. Let me, let me, let me think about that. Let me consider that. I get defensive. I, I lack gentleness in my responses to my wife and my kids. Recently, my wife and uh, kids reproved me for talking in an emphatic way to other drivers on the road. And you can't just use the Italian excuse, you know. I'm not using inappropriate language outwardly. It's in my heart. I'm just impatient and I lack grace. I got a Facebook message about six weeks ago. Here's the context for the message. I pulled into the uh, boat launch at a, a popular launch at 6.30 in the morning and I was just shocked that the launch was full. It was pitch black and I just couldn't believe it that I, I wasn't gonna have a place to park. And so I launched in a bit of a hurry and noticed that the entire parking lot was kind of disheveled. Like, Nobody really followed the rules of parking that morning. And so I pulled into a spot that was open, but I didn't want to have the guy next to me hit my truck or my trailer. And so I, I, thought, I, I thought I parked in, in a way that kind of left a reasonable amount of space around, in, around me. And this is what I got over Facebook. Very, professional for, uh, very unprofessional for a guide. I, I do some guiding on the side. Using two parking spots to park your rig with the walleye tournament going off Bingham, and a full lot, you showed no respect for other fishermen looking for a place to park. Not a, a pro move, Joe. Stick to preaching. <laughs> that stung a little bit. Just a little, just a little bit, right? Not, not a lot, uh, but a lot, actually. And um, <laughs> I thought about all kinds of responses I could give. But I had already been thinking about this passage and I'd already been thinking, God wants me to grow in being reasonable. And what does reasonableness look, look like? Gracious, kind, willing to yield. And, and so then I thought, how can I respond with humility? And I don't know about you, but like one of the things that someone shared with me is that when you're in that situation, when you get bumped like that, you want to kind of apply the 24-hour rule, which is you don't react or respond for 24 hours. You just want to take some time and really think through, like you've got to let the sting wear off a little bit. And you want to think, how can I honor God with my response? And thought about justifying why I did what I did and blame my decision-making on the other trucks and trailers and the lot. But instead, I decided to take the higher road and just communicate with grace and humility. This is my response. I wanted you to see this. Thanks so much for your message. I really appreciate you bringing this to my attention. It's my desire to not park in a way that affects others negatively. I'm, I'm sorry that it impacted your life in that way. Never heard anything back. I share that with you not to make me look like the hero. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the hero of all of our stories because if I didn't have Jesus, I wouldn't have responded like that. But I want to share that with you because I want to push you in that direction with your life. The world lacks reasonableness. May that not be said of Jesus' followers. Why? Because we represent Jesus in this world and Jesus is reasonable. We serve a God who is reasonable. God is full of kindness and gentleness and generosity. Look what Jesus wrote or said, and, and Luke recorded it. Jesus said this, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return and your, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Another translation says the wicked. God was kind to me when I was ungrateful and wicked. 
Another place Jesus said this, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In another place in the New Testament, Paul wrote this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And so we see over and over again that God is kind. His kindness leads us to repentance. He's reasonable. He's a gentle, gracious God. Before we move on to the, the last imperative, Paul says that we are to let our reasonableness be, let, be let, our reasonableness be known to all. And he says, for the Lord is near. The Lord is at hand. What does he mean by the Lord's at hand? It means that Jesus will return. The early church believed in the imminent return of Jesus, that he could come back at any moment. And so do we. He's going to come as both Lord and judge, and in his return, he will expect to see this character quality in his people because we are to be a reflection of who he is in this world. Which leads us to the final gospel overflow from this passage, and it's this. Do not be anxious about anything. The Greek word for anxious is the word merimeneo. And it means to be anxious or to care for, to meditate on, to think about, to ponder, to be careful. And one of my favorite writers says this, Warren Wearsby, he wrote that, this about this word merimeneo. It means to be pulled in different directions. He went on to say this, our hopes pull us in one direction and our fears pull us in the opposite direction and we are pulled apart. The old English root from which we get our word worry means to strangle. And if you've ever really worried, you know how it does strangle a person. So true. In fact, worry has definite physical consequences, headaches, neck pain, ulcers, even back issues. Worry affects our thinking, our digestion, and even our coordination. If you're anything like me, you know how to be anxious. You know, nowadays they have this thing called anxiety disorders. We didn't know what that was growing up. I was anxious all the time. Just, just, that was just a way of living for me. I totally resonate with feeling that, that feeling of being pulled in multiple directions. I'd imagine that when, if we were to kind of take a poll in here and find out who struggles with fear and anxiety, I would bet the vast majority of us do. The same would be true inside of the church and outside the church. See, when anxiety flares in my life, I tend to try and control, which is, in many ways, is the opposite of trusting God. So I move away from trusting God to trusting myself, and then I try to play God. At some level, as I've wrestled with the roots of anxiety in my life, I think it boils down to this, do I trust that God is good and that what he does is good? I love this letter that we're looking at. I love Philippians, and I don't love it. 
I love the beauty and truth of joy and experiencing joy because of Jesus and his great gospel. But at the same time, this passage exposes something in me. It reveals at a deep level that I don't trust God. That I don't believe he's intimately involved in the details of my life. That he has my best in mind. That ultimately I belong to him. He can do whatever he wants with my life. life life's not about me, it's about him. I feel like I'm an adolescent that wants what I want because I can't see the bigger picture. Anyone else feel like that ever in their life? 100% clarity without 100% perspective. We've lived one way for so long that we've developed a rut again that we just naturally fall into. And that rut is anxiety and an anxious heart. And yet Paul says, we don't have to be anxious about anything. The Greek word for anything there, you're never gonna guess what it means. It means anything. It means no one or nothing. Nothing at all, not at all, in no way. So today we don't have to be anxious at all. Anxious about no one and nothing, not at all, in no way. So Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but what? But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Prayer is the antidote for anxiety. Instead of talking to myself about all my anxious issues, Paul says, take them to God. Pour out your heart to him because he cares for you. Jesus didn't die to set to set us free from sin and then leave us to fend for ourselves in this life. The beauty of the gospel is that God is now permanently with you. You have a counselor who lives in you. When you came to faith in Jesus, you received the Holy Spirit. He lives in you and he wants to empower you to do what you couldn't do on your own. And part of that is trusting God with the big things and the little things in your life. I'll just tell you, this stuff kicks my butt. It's right where I'm at. Tuesday, I got an email. It just keeps coming. It's like a, a kind of a bomb went off. My marriage and family are great, praise God. It was a circumstance. It was a, a part of, of my rhythm of life that was being tampered with. It wasn't even being taken away. It was just like somebody was poking it, just messing with it. I hate when that happens. It was just an area of my life that I, I've derived a lot of joy from. And it kind of sent me uh, kind of into a tailspin for a moment. And then I'm finishing this message and I have to stare at these words and think about them over and over again. So I share that just so that, that if, you, if that's anywhere where you're at, we're in the same boat. We're fishing in the same hole together. Before I move on, I, wanna, I gotta ask this. Do you actually pray like Paul talks about here? Easy to throw up a Hail Mary to God. You've got to fix this. Give me this. But look what Paul, how he lays this out. He says, we, we're, to, we're to pray, we're to supplicate, we're to present our requests with supplication, with thanksgiving. We're supposed to give thanks, even in the middle of our struggle with whatever that anxious thing is. And then he says, present your requests. Is that what your prayer life looks like? 
What if you didn't leave your time of prayer until you sensed you had the peace of God given to you? Like you can tell that your anxiety is gone and you have something different from God. You've uploaded the worry of your life and you've downloaded God's peace. Instead of going through the motions, what if you were like, I'm not leaving here, Father, until you reshape my perspective or supernaturally give me your peace? It's exactly where Paul goes in verse seven. He says this, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart's in your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is what we learn here. God's answer to anxiety isn't you getting what you want or having life go the way you want it to go. His answer is his peace. Divine peace, peace from God. What's interesting is that in another place in the New Testament, we were told that we've been, because we've been justified by faith in Jesus, we now have peace with God. Like there's nothing between us and God anymore because of Jesus. Completely forgiven, fully acceptable, fully accepted. And so we have, are at peace with God, but now Paul says that the peace of God is available to us. And this peace is amazing. When Paul wrote about th- this divine peace, he didn't envision a situation where circumstances changed or you had whatever you wanted or needed given to you. Paul could experience divine peace while he was still in prison, still chained to a Roman guard. You can experience divine peace chained to whatever circumstances you're going through. Things are tight financially. God's divine peace is here for you even before things change in your finances. You feel relational anxiety at work? God's divine peace is right here, right now, even if the tensions at work don't change. You had some part of your world change, creating anxiety. God doesn't promise that my circumstances are gonna go the way I want them to go, but that his peace is available to me right now. When you receive the peace of God, it it may not make sense. Look at what Paul says with verse seven. He says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. One commentary writer said this about this peace. He said, Paul contrasted knowledge and peace at one point. Peace excels over knowledge. No doubt he had in mind situations where knowledge is insufficient. Sometimes it can't explain. And sometimes explanations don't help, do they? Well, my scenario that I'm walking through isn't resolved. And, and the resolution might be, again, the really sad end of something that has brought me a lot of joy. And honestly, the changing circumstances, the stuff that's kind of going on, makes sense. But that doesn't help me have peace. I need the peace of God that Paul talks about here, and so do you. I shared uh, that I was speaking on this, this passage in our staff meeting this past week, and one of the the people in that meeting talked about losing your dad in a, in a plane crash. I can't imagine what that, would, what that would be like. That'd be far beyond what I think I could handle. And yet she said that God's peace was powerfully felt during that season of grief and loss. She said that during that time, she experienced a peace that met her in a situation where there would be no earthly resolution 
or explanation. And God wants to do that for me and you. He wants to give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. Paul ends this section like this. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The word guard there is a military term. The implication is that peace stands on duty as a guard to keep out anything that brings anxiety and care back into our minds. I mean, the whole point of what we've been talking about is we need help. We need help. That's, that's the whole point of the Christian faith. We can't do this on our own. We need Jesus. We need God's help in all things, but especially in this area of anxiety. And so God starts by justifying us by faith so that we have peace with God. And then he gives us the peace of God to guard our hearts and our minds. His peace will stand on duty to keep out the things that cause you to go right back to worry and anxiety. I think that is just incredible. Your faith has so much depth potential. And yet most of us don't experientially know God the way that he wants us to know him. Why? Because it's not enough to know the truth. You have to do something with the truth. To know that I'm not supposed to be anxious about anything, but through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, I'm supposed to present my request to God. I memorized that verse 25 years ago. I know it. But what do we do with it? You know, that's the question. What do you do with what you know from God's word? We're to be, the, we're to be doers of the word and not just hearers of the word. It's the application of truth that sets us free. Remember that. And so these are the three applications I have for you as I kind of bring things to a close here. The first one is this. What if you were to start by rejoicing in the Lord always? It'd be a great application. Go home and count all the ways that God has blessed your life because of Jesus and his gospel. I don't know how you kind of would do that. Maybe you're a pen and pencil kind of, a paper and pencil kind of person. Go ahead and write all those things down, put them on the refrigerator. Maybe you're the kind of person that likes to keep things on your phone. Start a new note and just start an ongoing list. What did the psalmist say? How has he redeemed your life from the pit? How has he crowned you with his steadfast love and mercy? How has he satisfied and, and, and how does he satisfy you with good? That's the first one. The second one is this. Allow the gospel to overflow in your life, helping you, you to grow and become a reasonable person. Gracious, kind, gentle, willing to yield, selfless. Like, pick one area that you want to grow in this, this idea of being reasonable. Maybe it's with your husband or your wife. I'll tell you what, if you, I'll give you a secret. If this is who you become, you're going to have a better marriage. If you do this with your kids, you're going to have a better relationship with them. What if you were to say, I'm going to, I want to be gracious when I'm behind the wheel or when I'm driving in the car with somebody else? Third application is 
God's got us secure in his arms because of the gospel. And the overflow is I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be anxious at all. About no one, not at all, not one thing. I don't have to be anxious about anything. But when I am, I need to train my heart to go to him and pour out my heart to him and not leave before I have his peace. Which is going to guard me. It's going to watch over my heart and my mind. And the reality is you go to him and you feel like you have the peace and then a fresh wave of anxiety comes and you go right back. And I'd imagine if you did this, you may not accomplish as much in your day but you'd have a radically different life experience. We can have joy regardless of our circumstances. I'm just like you. I'm in the middle of a beautiful mess. And God has us right where he wants us. And he's gonna work all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And when you read that verse, you have to connect it with the next verse, which says that his goal is to conform you to the image of his son, which is awesome and super painful. Okay, so I'm gonna kinda switch things right now and we're gonna move into a time of communion. And what I love about communion is we get a chance to continue to stay in this mindset of gospel overflow where we get to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, when we do this, we tend to flip to 1 Corinthians 11 when we talk about communion, where Paul wrote this. He said, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he was betrayed for you, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which means right now we are proclaiming to each other the gospel. Before we move on, Paul, Paul went on and he wrote this. He said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so, drink, or so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What was going on in, in the church in Corinth is people would come to these gatherings and they'd eat all the food and they'd drink all the, the wine and they'd be drunk. And they weren't thinking about other people, the other people, their other brothers and sisters. And so part of what we do is we have a time of reflection. And part of that reflection is, is just to think about what's going on in your vertical relationship with God and what's going on in your horizontal relationship with other people. And if there's anything that needs to change there, this is a good time to kind of examine that in yourself. As a church, we encourage anyone who has embraced the gospel to come to the table. If you're still in process, you know, you take the time. Stay in your seat. There's nothing wrong with that. And just think about the gospel. And think about what's holding you back 
from responding to what Jesus has done for you. And we have this two cup system and the juice and the bread are together. So you wanna make sure you grab the, the two cups together. There's four tables down in the front. There's two in the back. And just to kind of manage the chaos in this room, we, we try to encourage the outside sections to go either to the front or the back and the two inside sections to come to the front. And so you can take some time and just think and reflect. And, um, and then you can come grab the elements. And then at the end, I'll come back up and we'll, we'll kind of take all of that together and we'll, we'll go from there.